Hello and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Woman in the Window. The Woman in the Window was written by A.J. Finn and was published in 2018. And the film adaptation, which came out just weeks ago in 2021, was directed (laughs) by Joe Wright uh, and premiered on Netflix. Yes. And this is a new film coming out. It was supposed to come out for quite some time before this, but it's had somewhat of a troubled production history. Yeah, uh, apparently original um, test screenings for audiences led them to believe that the plot was, like, incomprehensible. Yeah. So they ended up having to do some reshoots, which isn't always, like, a terrible thing. No. Um, You know, a lot of movies have reshoots, uh, but it did push back the release date, uh, and then the release date was pushed back further by a little thing called COVID, <laughs> uh, which led to the film being uh, released on Netflix. Yeah. So originally supposed to be a theatrical release and then distributed through Netflix, as many films have been at this time. And it's interesting, too, because this book and movie really feel like they're part of a bigger tradition in movies and shows and books that are this like kind of domestic thriller aspect yeah and it in particular really reminded us of the girl on the train which we just did an episode on only a couple months ago yeah because i mean and this is funny uh Gone Girl 2, yeah. which is kind of in this genre to an extent as well. Maybe not quite as similar. Yeah. Uh, that came out in 2012. And then Girl on the Train came out, I think, three years later in 2015. And then The Woman in the Window came out in 2018, right? Yeah. So it's like these, like every three years, <laughs> one of these really comes out strongly. And I mean, there's tons of other popular books of this type. Yeah. Um, Ian and I read this really interesting article, and we'll link it on our um, Patreon page. And it was kind of about what what the article called Grip Lit. Yeah. Which was mostly domestic thrillers. And the article mentioned, you know, Girl on the Train, The Woman in the Window, also mentioned Big Little Lies, Sharp Objects, um, Behind Her Eyes, I think, which is something that just came out on Netflix as well. The Undoing, which is recent. Yeah, that was a recent uh, uh, TV project. And kind of argued that this type of genre is actually better served in a TV show format as an adaptation. Yeah, it was a really strong case for that. The thing I thought was most interesting was how these genre uh, books, there's a lot of um, uh, cliffhangers kind of, like from chapter to chapter, like a lot of reveals. And they say that's very well suited for a TV format. Where at the end of the episode, there's kind of like a reveal. Mm -hmm. And then the next episode will begin, but not with that thing specifically. And then you have to wait to see how that unfolds further. And comparing like a book that you can't put down to a show that you just binge. Yeah. Whereas the movie might not capture that bingeable quality as well. Yeah. But books and TV shows kind of have that. And so clearly this book and this movie are drawing on a larger tradition in books, in movies, and films. And specifically, another aspect we want to touch on that's kind of an homage here are Hitchcock films. Yeah, uh, clearly, you know, there was definitely an allusion to Hitchcock for sure with Girl on the Train, 
with, you know, her kind of witnessing, not necessarily a murder, but kind of like... Spying on these people. Yeah, just kind of the idea of spying on other other people's lives, the intersection of strangers and it kind of disrupting uh, very, you know, like family dynamics and people's lives. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Girl on the Train definitely had elements of that. Woman in the Window arguably takes it too far maybe for some yeah um and i was really curious going into this book and film how i would feel because i mean it really feels like um rear window it's almost exactly rear window you know the premise of someone who's housebound Mm -hmm. you know and sees something happen and is convinced that someone was murdered and is trying to figure out And no one believes them. No one believes them. And it's sort of like their attempts to detective this together. And the police don't believe them. And kind of like going from there into like a confrontation with the killer. Even down to Amy Adams' character in this film spying through a camera lens. Yeah. She has a physical therapist, just like Jimmy Stewart has. Oh my God, yeah. Like the nurse, you know? Now, to be fair, I mean, there have been other movies that have, are very similar in this genre. Uh, Disturbia is another one starring Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. Where he's under house arrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more of obviously a suburban environment, but he also thinks he witnesses a murder. And, yeah. Um, you know, so it's not the first time that the rear window concept has been very closely copied, but mm-hmm. I would argue this is the closest that, at least in like a, a very mainstream type story. Yeah, I mean, the author is clearly aware of that and is letting the reader know that he's aware of it as well because the main character, Anna, is a huge old movie and specifically a Hitchcock fan herself. And Rear Window is mentioned, Vertigo is mentioned, The Man Who Knew Too Much, like tons of Rebecca even, tons of Hitchcock is mentioned in this book. I was really uncertain, and the the film does nod to this as well a little bit, Um, I was really uncertain how I felt about this at first, because just acknowledging the connection isn't necessarily like enough to be like, we get it, you know, because sometimes you're like, yeah, Yeah. and like, you know, um, and I do think it's to varying degrees of success throughout the story. But like for the most part throughout, it felt aware of it enough. In fact, at one point, Anna's thinking about um, she has lists in her head of films and one was like, Movies that Hitchcock wish he had made. Yeah. Movies that were inspired by Hitchcock later. Yeah. Uh, which was kind of fun and kind of obviously a nod to like the story itself in a very meta way. Mm-hmm. All this to say we are plugging our bonus episode. Yeah. Speaking of Hitchcock, <laughs> we decided that it was high time for us to just do a rear window episode and we might watch um, Vertigo as well. But, you know, we did The Girl on the Train and now we're doing The Woman in the Window. I feel like we just need to talk about Rear Window specifically. Yeah, which was based on a short story, apparently. But like... It's very, very short. It's very short and I think tough to find even. Yeah. So we didn't think it was worth doing like a normal episode on. But Mm -hmm. like, obviously its influence is so strong even today. Yeah. And and neither of us have seen Vertigo either. Mm -hmm. So... It seems like that's also a pretty strong influence on this story as well, but we just weren't able to 
I don't I think discern that as much just because we're unfamiliar with that one. Yeah. So if you would love to hear us talk about uh, Rear Window and Vertigo, you can become a patron. All our patrons get access to our bonus episodes. Just go and... to patreon.com slash covered credits. <laughs> <laughs> and you too can listen to us talk about the amazingness. More of people window. staring at other people <laughs> through camera lenses. We're not weird, Ian, for spying on our neighbors is no, the premise of this. I mean, I think you and I can relate to a degree because we we can be nosy. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I'm always kind of. I, I admit it. I love hearing about people that we like vaguely know. Yeah. Kind of getting all the dirt on what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. You know. Maybe yeah. Who hasn't pressed their ear to like a, you know, ventilation yeah, to hear their downstairs neighbor while they're yeah. talking on the phone. Or like look through the window or like slow down on the street if someone's having a conversation to hear what they're saying. I don't know. <laughs> wow, that's more specific. <laughs> <laughs> Too specific? Okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> not, not more specific than the vent thing. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about Anna a little bit more specifically. We already talked about she... Uh, really likes classic movies. She plays chess mm-hmm. online, which I appreciate. Um, she's also agoraphobic. Yeah, we don't know why at the beginning, but she can't leave her house. And it's been this way for her for about 10 to 11 months. So mm-hmm. it's clearly become an issue. And she frequents this online community as well called the Agora, which is sort of like a support website for people with agoraphobia and weirdly enough Anna is a psychiatrist yeah a child psychiatrist Mm -hmm. so she kind of uses her skills as a psychiatrist on this website but is unable to help herself tragically the irony the irony (laughs) but but she does try to use her skill set to you know help other people who are who have have agoraphobia mm-hmm. uh, to try to help them adjust, give them resources that are, you know, I really liked this aspect, her being like at least somewhat proactive in some way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like trying to help other people. Yeah. And, you know, having some semblance of a purpose in life. And I, I really do like all the details and time you spend with Anna before the mystery even begins. Mm-hmm. And this is mostly in the book, especially this uh, Agora website. Yeah. And we find out too that she loves creeping on her neighbors because what else does she have to do? Oh yeah, of course. She's like reading the book of like a book club that one of her neighbors is in. <laughs> um, she uses her camera and just her naked eye to watch her neighbors. She just kind of keeps up with what's going on with them. There, uh, another Hitchcock illusion is uh, there's a kid who plays the cello in the book. Yeah. Kind of filling the streets with music, much like the piano player in Rear Window. Mm-hmm. I think in the uh, the film, there's a kid playing trumpet, I think, instead. Yeah. You do get a few shots that are like Rear Window, kind of that panning across, like, just random windows. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, <laughs> medicated. Mm-hmm. She has a wide variety of medications that she tries to juggle. Uh, she's not very good at it. No. And she has a drinking problem, which... It's not great, but it kind of makes sense. Like, she doesn't have a lot of human interaction and not not a lot going on in her life. So her, uh, I guess, drug of choice is red wine, which she just guzzles by the bottle full. Honestly, I've never been more turned off to a drink than red wine from reading this book. (laughs) Like, I'm like, I don't want to drink red wine for a while, honestly. She makes it sound so disgusting. 
I couldn't help but laugh because in the film, it's the same. She's drinking red wine and she's drinking it out of one of those glasses that is so large. (laughs) It's approaching novelty size. You know what I mean? Like she can hardly get her hand around it. And I'm always like, I kind of want a red wine glass that's that massive, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And she's also separated from her family. Um, She talks to her husband and daughter on the phone, but they're separated. And it's kind of hard to understand at the beginning, but... We're meant to understand that they are living apart because of her agoraphobia. Yeah, uh, there's a brief mention of the fact that, like, her being on her own is better for her during this time. Yeah. Um, and and they, that- w- they were going to move together somewhere yeah. else or, like, sell the house. And then Ed and Olivia, her husband and daughter, decided to just move instead. Yeah, but she keeps in uh, frequent contact with them uh, yeah. over the phone, mm-hmm. it seems. And her neighbor stalking gets a little more interesting when a new family moves into one of the houses on her street, the Russells. And of course, being Anna, she's already like researched them. She knows their names. It's Alistair and Jane. And then their son, which she finds out later is Ethan. And she's kind of like watching them move in. And pretty shortly after she sees kind of the first appearances of the Russells on her street, the teenage boy, Ethan, comes over with a gift from his mom for her. Yeah, and Ethan seems like a very kind of shy, kind of honest and sincere uh, teenage kid. Yeah. He's 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Anna immediately takes kind of a liking to him. He seems very just earnest and... um you know, hard on his sleeve kind of kid. Yeah, and it's clear that she's missing her daughter. Mm -hmm. And also clear that she's missing her previous role as a child psychiatrist. You know, wanting to help kids was her calling. And now she's helping people online, but she can't really do her job anymore because she can't leave her house. And she can see signs in Ethan that there might be some trouble at home with his dad or... Um, just with adjusting to moving to a new place. And so it feels like they connect, but I don't feel like this came across in the movie well. No. And you know, at first, like the first moments that you see Ethan, I thought, oh, what a perfect casting choice. Like he does seem kind of like, um, young and dorky. Yeah. Young, dorky, kind of earnest. But as this initial scene of them carried on, he was just kind of weird. Like, he wasn't... And, and I don't know if he was, like, trying to be a little bit odd in an endearing way. Or maybe the actor was kind of trying to play up a younger kind of vibe. Because he does feel, like, infantilized a little bit. Yeah. Uh, And it just kind of makes you feel a little... Like, is there something up with this kid? Like, not even suspicious, but, like... Well, and I wonder even if it's something that's easier to get away with with a book. Yeah. But then when you see a kid that age on the screen, you're like, this is weird. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, in the book, you kind of also get a little bit of an odd feeling, I think, about Ethan. Yeah. Like something's he's maybe like a little too just like open and honest and like uh, pure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, To Anna, like, right off the bat, that, like, maybe you're suspicious of him or something's a little off, but, like, 
Um, yeah, I just feel like the scene in the movie was really creepy. And I think Anna, too, was playing it. I don't know what direction Amy Adams was given, but she was playing it as very, like, kind of uncomfortable with him. Yeah, on her guard a little bit. Whereas in the book, she's immediately very welcoming and accepting of him and clearly falling back into her child psychiatrist role um, in, like, trying to get a child to open up, trying to make mm-hmm. them feel comfortable and safe. Whereas in the movie, it was just like, she was like, um, no, I can't see people. I'm like, so alone. Like, don't touch me. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away from me. Yeah. As she cinches her bathrobe tighter. Yes. Uh, How many bathrobes does this woman own? I don't know. Like, is it one bathrobe that she's constantly just spilling, spilling wine, wine on? on? <laughs> the constant allusions to the bathrobe. I was like, Please wear something else. Like, have you seen like sweatpants and a sweatshirt? Like, that's way more comfortable than a bathrobe. Yeah. Or just she should just really either buy a red bathrobe or dye it red. <laughs> she should just like fill a bucket full of Merlot. Well, she never talks about doing laundry. I'm like, how many bathrobes are just sitting somewhere in a corner in a pile? Like, <laughs> does she just order a new one every time? She just throws them out like, <laughs> oh, there's some Merlot on that one and yeah. just down in the bin. Yeah. Uh, she also is renting, uh, the basement out to a tenant named David. He's kind of a handyman and she gives him a discounted rent rate, um, because, you know, she needs someone to take the trash out for her since she can't go outside and to run errands, maybe do some things around the house. Yeah. Uh, and David is very... In the book, he's very kind of quiet and reserved. Yeah. I think in the movie, he's a little bit more outgoing and friendly, mm-hmm. at least at the start. Yeah. Uh, but he's an interesting character. Yeah. We hear a lot about how hot he is in the book. Yes. A lot. <laughs> a lot. I am kind of disappointed because she talks a lot about, oh, constantly, like she'll hear the water running downstairs when he's talking to her up yeah. like on the ground level. And she's like, oh, he's got another lady over tonight. Like she's mm-hmm. constantly talking about like the women he has over. The ladies. The ladies. But I was really like crossing my fingers. I'm like, I hope that he's actually gay. Yeah. Like they're like, she's because sh- the whole time she's just assuming that like he's, he's straight. hooking up with all these women. Like we're never told that she sees any of them. Yeah. And I was just like, wouldn't that be great if, And I thought that's where it was going because later she like sneaks downstairs and I thought she was going to run into like one of the men he had been with. (laughs) But nah, he's straight. Nah. (laughs) Yeah. Played by the guy who's in the new uh, Falcon Falcon and Winter Winter Soldier. Soldier. Yeah. Which is funny because Anthony Mackie, who plays Falcon, is uh, her husband. I know. In the film. So funny. So this is like, I I swear to God, Adina, like... (laughs) 30% 30% of IMDb trivia now is... Relates to Marvel. Oh, my God. It's like, uh, these two actors have uh, each played Marvel superheroes. Anthony Mackie played like the Falcon. It's like, we know everyone has played a Marvel Everyone's character. been a fucking superhero. Like, please. <laughs> like, but I swear that's like so... Why is that interesting as a fact? It's not. It's not at all. <laughs> Yeah, I just because I always comb through those when researching for episodes and it's always they're mostly at the bottom. Like you start getting to like the trash. These actors both worked with Julianne Moore in 2003. (laughs) It's like, I don't. Why? Why is that a thing? (laughs) Uh, Let's get to some kids throwing eggs at Anna's house for no apparent reason. 
Yeah, just being shit. I feel like this wouldn't happen. Okay, this takes place in Harlem, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, there are a lot of houses and brownstones and apartments and just people everywhere. I feel like these kids would never get away with doing something well, like Well, it, it lasts so long. It's not like one thing where they, like, throw a few eggs and then, like, run away. Yeah. It's like they're just standing outside launching eggs for, like, 15 minutes. I know, and it takes Anna so long to, like, stumble out of the house, <laughs> and she's like, ugh. Crawling out on her hands and knees. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of our first scene of her, you know, being confronted with a problem like this, and she actually kind of builds up the courage enough to just open the door yeah. and to step outside and yell at them. But she doesn't get that far because she immediately just crumples <laughs> and, into, passes out. and passes out into a heap on the on the stoop. Here's what I'm saying, Ian. She should have just so like instead of opening the door and trying to go outside, she should have just opened her window, which is also hard for her to do. Yeah. But like less hard than opening the door and throwed eggs at them. Grabbed her own eggs. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a great idea. Yeah. She should have just retaliated. <laughs> that's, yeah. No, she should have. Uh, Instead, she is rescued by Jane Russell, the woman who has just moved in across the street. And she sees Anna go down like a ton of bricks and immediately <laughs> helps her back inside and is like, hey, are you okay? Like, what's going on? Yeah. Uh, in the book, this is their first encounter. It's pretty brief. Jane doesn't stay around very long. Uh, but she later shows up again to say hi and stop by, and they kind of have this extended visit. Yeah. In the film, this smartly just compresses this into, like, the same scene. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, after Jane helps her, she sticks around, and they, you know, have some drinks together. They kind of start talking. Like, Jane is immediately this very warm and interesting person. Yeah. And I think the book conveys this very well. Um, you know, just kind of this liveliness about her yeah asking anna about her life being curious and i mean anna doesn't have anyone to talk to besides her therapist and then her physical therapist as well that comes over to help her with you know um some injuries that she sustained at a time that we don't know about but she feel it feels like she immediately bonds with jane and you know anna talks to her about ethan coming over and they talk about having kids and Anna tells her about her daughter, Olivia, and it feels like they really bond over that. Yeah. In the film, Jane is played by Julianne Moore. Yeah. Who is 60 years old. Yes. And then... I mean, she looks great. She does. And then Alistair Russell is played by Gary Oldman, who is an old man. Old Gary, old. I actually he finally grew into the old man. Yeah, <laughs> he's embracing it. Yeah, and I mean, Amy Adams herself is uh, forty six years old. Yeah. Um, and this just touching on the fact that like a lot of these actors, it's one thing to have like one actor who's like unconventionally a little bit older to be playing a certain type of character. Yeah. Um, but like. Most of these actors are like kind of older than they should be. Here's the thing. Amy Adams is eternal. You know, we talked about this. Like we can't trust her, you know, (laughs) listen to our arrival episode if you don't know what we're talking about. Um, But we also did an episode where we talked about her in Sharp Objects. Oh, that's right. We've talked about her a lot. We have. She's an adaptation queen. Um, But she played someone much younger in Sharp Objects. And I feel like she kind of pulled it off Mm -hmm. in this one. I 
definitely feel like her age is showing. And I think they were doing that on purpose. Oh, yeah. To try to make her look like gross and an alcoholic and like a woman who stays inside all day. Yeah. But then she's like, I have an eight-year-old daughter. And you're like, okay, I could like maybe believe that. And then you see Jane and Alistair and they're people that are 60 or 63. And it's like, okay, men can have kids as old as they want. And they're like, we have a like 15 or 16 year old kid and you're like really okay yeah it just i don't know i feel like they really should have cast younger it's just like each person they introduce just keeps getting older like and like jennifer jason lee is the i know other woman who plays the like wife so i know yeah like they just like first it's it's, too old versus like amy adams right okay then it's like julianne moore you're like she okay. looks kind of old. And then it's like Gary Oldman hobbles in and like <laughs> threatens Amy Adams. <laughs> and then Jennifer Jason Lee is like, I'm the real Jane. Oh, I'm here as well. And you're like, you are all so old. And I didn't... that's not meant to be like an insult to people who are no. old. I just mean that like when you are like, this is our kid who's 15, you're like, okay. And like, I think all these actors are good. Like, you know, age you know disregarded like i think they all play the part like i think julianne moore for the small portion of time that jane gets in this film to leave an impression julianne moore does a really good job with that she kind of has that natural ease that chemistry that Mm -hmm. like kind of manicness though yeah yeah and i I think what you get in the book is julianne moore really brings that to this role so i think she does a great job uh it was just kind of funny the the way that like they just kept getting older as the actors were introduced. And it was more just like, who do we, who can we get for this part? You know what I mean? What kind of dream cast can we assemble? Yeah. Yeah. It feels not as intentional as it could be. Yeah. I also just feel that way in movies in general, like actors who are like in their fifties are constantly like, I'm thinking about having kids. And <laughs> You're like, no, you shouldn't. (laughs) It just seems like, like, I don't know. Like, it's never anyone who's, like, in their 20s or anything like that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But getting back to the story, Anna starts feeling, after this time that she hangs out with Jane, it's really fun. She starts feeling kind of uneasy about Ethan and Jane and, like, the family in general. Because soon after Jane leaves, Alistair, the husband, comes over and is like, hey, has anyone been here? And it's like... That's a really weird question to just show up and ask. Like, and Anna feels like Jane might get in trouble if she says yes. So she says, no, I've been here alone this whole time. Yeah. And similarly, I think she starts based on some things that, uh, oh my God, what Jane said, <laughs> forgot her name, uh, based on some things Jane said, some things Ethan's alluded to, she kind of is suspicious that Alistair is like an abusive husband and that there's like problems at home. Yeah. Um, Similarly, one night she hears some screams yeah. across the park where the uh, the family lives. Mm-hmm. And she calls the house, which Ethan seems upset. And then Alistair is like, no, nothing's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So she's getting suspicious and a little bit concerned about what might be happening in this family. Then one night... She's having some wine, as usual. You know when you just are like, I'll just throw all these pills in my mouth and then drink like three bottles of wine (laughs) and watch a bunch of Alfred Hitchcock films like on a loop. I mean, two of those things sound pretty good. (laughs) I won't say which two. Uh, 
but she's just having her her staycation, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Some me time. Yeah. And I don't think anything alerts her to looking across the street, does it? She doesn't hear anything, right? No, she has just kind of a night where it seems like she's like kind of tripping a bit. Yeah. And the movie alludes to this with kind of this interesting couple of scenes where like you can hear the clock and then you can hear the sink dripping. Yeah. And she's kind of watching this movie and getting kind of like weird. And in both versions, she kind of wakes up at one point in the night and is sort of like casually looking through the window and through her camera because that's sort of like her default. Yeah. And she looks across the street and she sees a murder. She sees Jane in the house and the Russell home and she can't see who she's talking to. And then I think Jane like disappears from sight briefly. And when she enters frame again, uh, she has a knife in her and it's kind of this like, almost cheesy dramatic moment where she like collapses and drags a bloody hand down the window. And this obviously terrifies Anna. Yeah. And leads her to call the police. Mm -hmm. But something I wanted to talk about here was kind of the different uh, takes of this between film and book. Yeah. Because I actually think the book created a better cinematic experience for this scene than the movie did really so the the thing i loved about the book in this scene is as she's watching the house across the street and this scene unfold uh a old movie is playing in the background i forget Mm -hmm. which one but like it's described like this kind of classic organ music playing kind of this dramatic (laughs) almost cheesy uh film soundtrack is playing yeah and then of course she sees this murder and this very like cheesy almost moment of like the bloody hand smearing down the window. Yeah. And there's very much a silent scream. Yeah. Kind of a, um, a self-awareness to the whole thing that feels like very retro and kind of corny to an extent. Yeah. And playing into like the tropes of like those old kind of films. And I kept, when I read this, I was like, God, I hope the movie does this with like the, 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 music backing it mm-hmm. um and kind of playing up that aspect of it but weirdly the movie takes a like slasher film yeah that approach. slasher part was weird like we get this absurd bright red blood splatter on the screen it like zooms in it looks like sin city yeah like this like really cartoonish and like I don't know. It was just a very jarring kind of stylistic choice for this moment. Yeah, it did feel out of place with the rest of the film. I don't feel like the rest of the film did anything no. close to this. Also, the fake camera bobbing of when she's viewing through the camera lens killed me. <laughs> like, it was clearly just like an After Effects, them moving, yeah. like, the sight line around in a very inorganic way that was just like... Please. Oh, my God. It, <laughs> it was like, this is so fake looking. <laughs> and, like, the zooms and stuff, too. But, yeah, the film just kind of played it up in a very weird way, whereas I'm like, the mo- the book gave you the perfect blueprint yeah. to how to execute this scene. <laughs> I don't know why it deviated from that so far. Anna decides to call 911 once she can find her phone. (laughs) 
Oh my God. She's pretty fucked up. And then she's like, it's, I need to like do something more than just call 911. And she decides to try to like go out into the street and help Jane. And, and she doesn't get very far. It's <laughs> farther than last time, arguably. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't want to complain about too many things. In, no, in, in complain. So- okay, Let's okay. do it. Talk about it. Here's my beef. Here's my, oh God. So this movie does do a lot of, it makes some choices, okay? I'm not even going to say. Everybody makes choices. Here. Half, okay. Uh, big choices. <laughs> I won't even say successful ones, but like, you know, the slasher film element. Yeah. I didn't think it was successful, but it was like a clear stylistic choice, right? Yeah. In this moment, you're trying to get the audience to relate to Amy Adams's slash Anna's fear of being outside, her agoraphobia, yeah. right? Yeah. As a filmmaker, you have so many visual tools at your disposal to try to convey the sense of um, anxiety she feels when leaving the house. Yeah. Um, they do nothing. They just film her kind of being panicked and shuffling across the street. Yeah. Like, film it in a way that's interesting. Like, use a really big fisheye Make lens. Make it feel claustrophobic, even though it's outside. Yeah, ex- you use a really macro fisheye lens. Yeah, make it... I guess the opposite of claustrophobic. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah but yeah. like I know what you mean because I mean that is it's a weird kind of uh, paradox in that way. Yeah, but like or use a snorry cam, which is when like the camera's attached to the actor facing them, yeah. and it gives you this kind of disorienting kind of like it's used in movies like during drunk scenes or like scenes like that where the character's off balance. Yeah, or um, use interesting editing, like do something. To put the audience in that same feeling that she's in. Because this movie's shown that it's willing to make, like, kind of big stylistic choices. Yeah. But for some reason, in these moments where it could really use it to have the audience connect with what she's going through, it doesn't do anything. Instead, it's, like, Anna trying to grab her phone under the bed. And that's, like, the most dramatic part of this scene. She's like, "Eh, if I could only reach... (laughs) Well, and later on in the big climax of the film, she shockingly has to go outside, of course. Yeah. And like it does this zoom out of her stepping outside. And it actually took me a moment where I was like, oh, right. This is like scary for her. Yeah. Like I had to remind myself Mm -hmm. like the movie did nothing to like bring that feeling to me. I just had to be like, oh, right. She's agoraphobic. Yeah. So I just like felt this was like maybe the biggest missed opportunity of the film to do something stylistic that would have conveyed this feeling. Better. Yeah. This really abstract feeling that's hard, I think for most people to relate to. Yeah, I agree. Whereas the book did a great job of it. Mm-hmm. So this happens. <laughs> Anna tries to go outside and is rewarded by almost getting hit by a car. Yeah. I don't know what happened in that part in the movie. Yeah. In the book, she just kind of passes out in a park mm-hmm. and then the, ambulance picks her up and she ends up in a hospital and then back at home the movie just kind of puts her right back into her house and the police are there and they're like hey you called 911 but nothing bad happened there was no murder and we have detective little here which is played by um uh brian tyree henry yes really great love him yeah he's he's a great actor and he seems like he's actually sympathetic towards Anna. You know, he like cares about her perspective, but 
there him and his partner are basically like yeah there's no murder um jane russell is fine in fact she's right here and alistair's there and then in comes this woman who's like hi i'm jane yeah and and anna's like what the fuck yeah that's not jane i met jane that isn't her yeah and there's kind of like a lot of like like what's you know like everyone's just looking at her like she's crazy yeah nobody believes her and they're acting like she's just this crazy woman who won't go outside and even ethan in the book kind of backs this up and is like yeah that's my mom and clearly anna is like what happened here you know like i clearly saw someone get murdered and I met Jane, and this is not the real Jane. Yeah. The the way the movie scene plays out is kind of funny, too, because, like, characters just keep, like, revealing themselves from within the house. I know. Like, first it's just the detectives and Alistair, and then it's like, oh, I'm Jane, and she steps out from around a corridor, and then she's like, I need to talk to Ethan, and then Ethan steps out. He's yeah. like, you're crazy. <laughs> And I'm like, everyone's just in her house. How many people did these detectives invite into her home when she was unconscious? I know. I feel like they should have handled that way better. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I feel like if the police were handling a dispute between neighbors, like if they were really like no one was actually murdered. You don't gather them in the same place. You would do it separately. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the rule, I think. Because then, it's just common sense. Yeah, they could get into a fight like in front of you. Yeah, yeah. And this happens like multiple times in the book as well. Yeah, maybe in the book it just doesn't. You don't think about it as much because you're not actually seeing everyone suddenly show up. Yeah, but then in the film you're like, wait, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, Anna is not deterred though by this revelation. She's like, all right, time for me to become Detective Anna. Like, I'm gonna figure out what's going on. Why is this fake Jane here? What's happening? And she researches Alistair, the husband's like job and finds out he recently moved from Boston. And there was kind of like a scandal in his move from Boston to New York. And depending on which version you're talking about in the book, she kind of thinks that maybe he had an affair with the boss's wife. Yeah. And in the movie, it's like, oh, his assistant died? Yeah. Like, she maybe committed suicide, and Anna's like, oh my god, what if Alistair killed her? Mm-hmm. So there's this intrigue in terms of the family there. Yeah. Uh, similarly, uh, in the f- book, she actually manages to go outside and follow Jane to a coffee shop. Yeah. I really liked this scene. Uh, basically, she, you know, she has this umbrella that she uses to kind of like I guess give her a mobile roof over her head as she like (laughs) goes outside yeah it's a good scene though just in terms of like her like stepping into a coffee shop and being like this is so weird to be back here yeah and uh a sensation I experienced recently when I went to a coffee (laughs) shop and you're like oh my god it's been a year (laughs) exactly yeah no (laughs) I sympathized so much with Anna in this moment (laughs) I was like, lattes are how much? (laughs) Uh, You haven't had to pay for coffee in so long. I know. God, the money I've saved. (laughs) Uh, But she kind of confronts Jane in a public setting. And it's like, just once again, highlighting kind of how unhinged she's at least coming across to the public and to others. Yeah. Even if her intentions, like we know that she did see what she saw. In the book, she also just sleeps with David, her tenant. Yeah. This is weird. It was. I'm like, why was this in the book? 
I can't say. Uh, mostly just because, like, it doesn't go anywhere. No. Or do anything. Yeah. I don't know if it just was like, let's have a sexy element. Yeah. And then it's like, all right, we're done with that. The movie doesn't even touch on this at all. But, like, after she sleeps with David, she starts to maybe get suspicious of David. <laughs> well, she was, like, kind of suspicious of him before sleeping with him. Yeah. Because she went into his basement apartment and she found an earring there that she is certain belonged to The Jane. real Jane. Yeah. Uh, and so she's like, what are you doing with this? Like, did you kill her? Yeah. And he's like, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and then they sleep together later. And it's so weird because in the book, she only becomes suspicious of him again when he returns a box cutter to her without telling her. Yeah. And she's like, oh, my God. This proves it. He used the box cutter because, like, in the book, she doesn't see exactly what stabbed Jane. Yeah. And but, so like, she's like, it's the box cutter. Box cutters usually have just, like, plastic handles, like, bright colored. Yeah. And she specifically says the handle in the book was, like, silver. silver. Yeah. Like, we later find out it's a letter opener, which, like, yeah, that rings true. I'm like, why do you think it was a box cutter? Yeah. Also, I don't know if you could really, could you really kill someone with a letter opener? I, I'm not fancy enough to own a letter opener, <laughs> Dina. I don't know. I just feel like you would have to specifically aim it in the right spot. I mean, they're just a knife, aren't they? Not that sharp, though. I don't know. I guess we have to do more letter opening research. <laughs> Send us your thoughts on whether a letter opener could really kill someone. If you stab them in the chest. Like, if you try to, like, cut their throat, I feel like that might be... If you stab them in the throat, maybe that would be better. Mm. But like, if you stab them in the chest with the letter opener, I feel like well, you it's might po- it's not, enough. You might not kill them. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think they're like sharp like a knife, but I think they're pointy. I don't know. Anyway, I don't own one. <laughs> she realizes too that David has served prison time, so of course she's like, "Oh my god." He's been to prison, which means he's a criminal, as any white woman would assume. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call the cops. Oh, my God. I just there like the writing in this film isn't always bad by any means. No, but there are some scenes that stand out. And this is one of them where in the scene where she goes down and sees the earring. Yeah. She also sees a letter. Um, a, it, I didn't look at it closely enough. Is it addressed from like his parole officer or something? And he shows up at home and sees that she was looking at the letter and he and he goes on this monologue where he's like, OK, yes, I went to jail. OK, yeah, I should be in Massachusetts and I'm in New York. It's bad. It was a bar fight. OK, get I off was my provoked. back. I was provoked. It was assault. I spent time like he just like goes <laughs> off goes and lists like his entire backstory in one angry tirade. It makes no sense. It was very forced and like not great. Also, if he, his mail is being forwarded, wouldn't his parole officer know where he lived? <laughs> I'm like, why are you getting your mail forwarded if you're not supposed to be in You're that off s- the grid. Yeah. I don't know. Listen, I know, listen I'm not going to be in New York, but if you want to reach me, send the mail to New York. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a, the specific address. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, she fucks David. <laughs> Smartly not included. In the movie. In the movie. Yeah. I feel like the tone would have been all wrong. Yeah, because I mean, their relationship literally goes nowhere. Yeah. Maybe just wanted her to get some. I guess. Maybe it felt bad for her. Yeah. The book. (laughs) The book itself. I don't know. Like, she needs to get laid a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, this is followed not too long after by a scene where she receives an email that has the world's largest JPEG in it. God, oh my God, this movie scene where the photo is downloading, I'm like, (laughs) what year is it, 2003? (laughs) This is a film from 2021. In what universe? In Harlem, New York City, would you be downloading a photo for 10 seconds? You hear like the the dial-up connect, like, (laughs) er, er, er. (laughs) Yeah, this was ridiculous. But she does open an email and in that email is a photo of her sleeping. Yeah. And she's like, what the fuck? Also, her cat is limping. Mm. In the movie, her cat was like downstairs in David's apartment, which is weird. And like her cat seems to be injured and she kind of like brushes it off as like maybe he fell from one of the, you know, banisters or something. But like it's super creepy and she thinks that someone has been in her house. Yeah, and the photo basically proves it. Um, So she decides to call the police because in her mind, she has like evidence, like perfect evidence now. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, they're going to think that she took the photo herself. She made the email account. Like It's kind of one of those moments where you're like two steps ahead of the character. You can see where it's going. Yeah. Um, Which is where it does go. Yes. She calls. She assembles the neighborhood and the detectives. (laughs) Of course. Everybody gathers in Anna's apartment (laughs) as usual. They ring the bell. Yeah. uh, Everyone comes together and she shows them the photo of her and the email address it came from. Obviously say they're like this was probably you and then she's like but could i draw this <laughs> and she shows them a, a picture that jane had drawn while at her house of herself of, so it's just her. a picture of herself and she's like but it's signed jane russell i couldn't have written that <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what letters go together to spell that name yeah and like the detectives are there. The Russells are there. Ethan's there. David shows up at one point. Yeah, he Everybody's just gathered. In. It's very dramatic. And it's, I do really like how this played out in the movie. Yeah. As she's kind of like trying to present her evidence, but she's clearly like spiraling because nobody believes her. So she keeps like talking about all the things she's assembled in her mind. Yeah. So she's like, well, here's the photo. Here's like, I saw like Alistair hit Ethan. Like I saw like this woman murdered. And now I know that the earring was in David's apartment. I know that David served time. So she's kind of like just throwing out all these facts. And to her, she's building her case. But I love how in the movie it kind of shows and it really just is only on her. Like the camera is only on her. It isolates her. Nobody, there's no reaction shots from anyone else. It's just her. And it's just her like kind of not stopping talking, like throwing stuff out there, almost sounding like she's making shit up. Yeah, you know, I actually made a note because as it was going on, I wrote, um, I wrote Amy Adams accusing everyone. I wrote, does this work? I don't know. Because like, and, and, and by the end of it, like, I was like, I think it does. Like this scene of her, you know, the camera just lingering on her, isolating her. Uh, I wish it had gone to like some just kind of reverse shot of everyone looking at her. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Kind of to show that no one believes her. But then it kind of goes into another interesting stylistic choice where suddenly the background darkens behind her. And moments later, like the 
after, you know, she's told the big reveal that her family's dead. Yeah. And we get a shot of a crashed car in her living room, like Mm -hmm. physically in her living room. And I think this could have worked. And I'm not saying it doesn't. But the problem is it's just incongruent with other stylistic choices that have been made in the film. Yeah. You know, earlier when we got the murder scene, it was this slasher kind of like hyper edited sequence. It was like very stylistic. And this is surreal. Yeah. Now it's going surreal and like looking like a stage play, how they're like, yeah, literally dimming the lights and like actually having the physical objects in the room with her. And I just wish it had like, that's a cool idea. Yeah. But I just wish it had like stuck to like any of these kind of visual stylistic choices more throughout as kind of like a consistent motif as opposed to like randomly assembling them. I will say I really do love the scene where she's just kind of like spewing all these facts out. Yeah. When the camera's holding on her because it really does kind of make you get the idea that she's crazy. Yeah. Like you yourself are like, this sounds nuts. Like, it just sounds so ridiculous. And I feel like that pulled it off. I don't know about the car being in the apartment or how well that was pulled off. Yeah. I will say, though, I was actually really surprised by this reveal in the book that her husband and daughter weren't real. And I should have seen it coming, I guess, because she only talks to them like, quote unquote, on the phone. Mm-hmm. And it's very like superficial, like and it feels very vague, you know, like they're separated and like there's a, probably a reason for that. But things seem to be good between them and especially between her and her husband. And so I should have been suspicious. But then when it's revealed that they're actually dead. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I was suspicious of something. I can't say that specifically, but every time she talked to her husband on the phone or, you know, in her head, he was always like very supportive, very nice. And like, you know, I I thought like like, too perfect. Well, yeah, but I was like, well, that's nice that like they're separated and they have their problems, but he's still supportive. Then we start getting these um, flashback scenes to the night of whatever incident happened to her that caused her to be agoraphobic. We don't know yet. Yeah. Um, But they go on a vacation and to Vermont? Yeah, somewhere to ski. Yeah, somewhere New England. And things are tense with her and her husband. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, and 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 you find out that she cheated on him. Yeah, But suddenly he's a much more real person. And I'm like, this is really incongruent with like. The way he talks to her on the phone. Yes. And like, not that something couldn't have happened between this point and the present, but like something's very weird or different between these. Yeah. And you find out like they had this blow up and then decided to try to go home in a snowstorm and ended up crashing their car going off like a cliff kind of on the road and it being sort of like her getting this phone call like her and her husband kind of wrestling with the phone and ended up crashing over this gorge essentially and Anna kind of like trying to keep them alive but not being able to call 911 because they're so isolated and she has no service it was like really sad and terrifying and like makes sense that this would cause her agoraphobia that she did all that she could to try to save her family, but they ended up dying anyway. 
And like their car was perched like on a cliff's edge. Yeah. So she couldn't even leave. But she was like kind of surrounded by the vastness of like the night sky. And like even the forest was like really far below. So just like the this huge amount of space around her was kind of tied to this event that happened. Yeah. Um, I don't know how accurate this would be to like actually I don't think everyone who has agoraphobia has like <laughs> has had a, an like, origin story like this. <laughs> has had a too big of a space around them at one point in time. Yeah. I yeah. think it's probably a little bit like contrived in terms of the setup, but I think it's effective. I mean, I think the idea of just not feeling safe and being in a circumstance where a lot of your power and agency and control is taken away from you. Yeah. And then feeling like the only place that you are safe is like your home. Yeah. I mean, yeah, all of that, I think rings really true and like mm-hmm. gives you a lot of empathy for her as a, as a character and the situation. I also think the movie did a good job of like setting, cause I mean, this is a tough thing to do in movies. Um, yeah. And when we watched uh girl on the train, there's a twist that has to be kind of established throughout but I noticed right away, I'm like, I see what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to say because I knew the twist already watching the film, but I thought it was well done where you wouldn't maybe pick up on it, where like every conversation she has with them is just in voiceover. Yeah. Now, before their first one, you see her grabbing her phone. Yeah. So obviously that implies you that assume. this is happening over the phone, mm-hmm. but you never actually see her talking on the phone. Um, so I think that's a really smart visual setup to kind of fake out the audience. Yeah, I agree. But obviously this reveal kind of makes everything that she's saying sound super crazy to everybody. And it kind of convinces herself too. And everyone's like, all right, you're nuts. It's really sad that your family is dead, but you can't take it out on us. And she's kind of like, I'm sorry. Like, and is starting to doubt herself too. And I think this is really well conveyed in the book in terms of like, you're like, Maybe she is crazy. Yeah, you're like, I mean, that's a pretty solid reason that she might not be trustworthy. She's yeah. literally talking to her family and they are dead. Yeah. I think in the movie, you kind of don't have enough time to like accept that she does think she's wrong. Yeah. I don't know. Later on when she has proof that she was right and she's like, oh my God, I was right. And I was like, oh yeah, she thought she was wrong. Yeah. (laughs) It hasn't been enough time. There is a scene in both the book and the movie and it happens at different times where Alistair kind of comes over and like threatens her. In the book, he actually like assaults her physically, ends up like choking her and kind of throwing her around and telling her to stay away from his family. In the movie, it's just kind of him yelling at her aggressively and being like, stop talking to my son. Like, it's weird. He's like 15 or 16. Like, you're an adult woman. This is creepy. Yeah. He kind of like invades her personal space. Uh, I I do think there's probably a lot of good moments here that are not worth a rewatch. But if you did rewatch it, you'd pick up on like kind of the way I think Gary Oldman ends that by just saying, please. Yeah. You know, I think he did a good job of like. There's clearly a little bit more to that than just like a threat. Like he genuinely is wanting her to stay away and kind yeah. of uh, maybe he's trying to do it for her own good kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a very intense part of both versions, specifically the book. Yeah. And Anna, after she starts to think that she herself might be crazy, she decides to kill herself mm-hmm. in both versions. It's a little more drawn out in the movie. She actually like crushes up a bunch of pills and um, records a suicide video on her phone where 
she kind of gives her like last will and testament. And it's very sad because you do feel like nobody cares or like believes her. Yeah, I think the movie version of this scene was a little bit weird with her suicide video outtakes. (laughs) It was just kind of like... What are we supposed to get from this? Are we supposed to laugh? Kind of jarring and weird. And yeah, it almost felt like, yeah, is this supposed to be funny? I don't think, but... uh, Her suicide plans are interrupted, though, because she ends up looking at her phone again and finds a photo... That she took when she was hanging out with the Jane that she knows and loves and ends up seeing her reflection either in the window or in a wine glass. Yeah. And this just kind of solidifies the fact that like, oh, my God, this is a real person that was actually here. I'm not making her up. Uh, In the book, both book and film kind of have a different way of revealing a lot of this information. Yeah. In the book, she manages to talk to Ethan. She gets him to come over and she's able to sit down with him and she shows him the photo and he is able to kind of like reveal a lot of information to her. Mm -hmm. Essentially that this woman is his biological birth mother. Yeah. And that he's adopted. Yeah. And she had wanted to be a part of his life again, had kind of like followed them before and had followed them here. Mm -hmm. And she used to be a drug addict. Yes. He had a really troubled childhood and then was adopted by the Russell family. And, you know, she's trying to come back into their life again. And then it kind of says that like she had this confrontation with his dad and then she kept coming back over to try to like, insert herself into Ethan's life and that basically his mom, whose name is Jane and his birth mother's name is Katie. Jane was like, you can't have my son and like stabbed Katie. Yeah. And this is like kind of this shocking reveal that it was the real Jane that killed her. Yeah. I will say, and I don't want to be like, "Ah, I saw this coming or anything. I, I did kind of figure out pretty early on that the original Jane wasn't the actual real Mrs. Russell. Yeah. I think partly because in the film Chinatown, there's a similar kind of twist. In the first act of the film, someone hires the main character, Jack Nicholson, to this woman to photograph her husband. Mm -hmm. And so Jack Nicholson's like, sure, and he does the job. And then later this other woman shows up and is like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm the real Mrs. Whatever. And he's like, oh, shit. Well, then who was that? that? Who was that original woman? Mm -hmm. And so that maybe popped into my head at one point. I'm like, well, we're all we just keep assuming that the first woman was the real one. She was probably the fake one. So I didn't know that until it was revealed. Um, But Ethan kind of says, like, please let me go to my parents. Like, I'll tell them that you know and that we have to go to the police. Like, just let me talk to them and we will, like, figure it out. Yeah, and I'm sure that's all going to go according to plan. Totally. In the film, once she sees uh, the real, or, you know, the Jane that she knew in the photo, she goes and talks to David uh, and has this conversation. And this is where it's revealed that the woman who he slept with, whose earring he had, was that woman, but he's like, that's Kate, that's Catherine. Yeah. Like, this was one of the weirdest moments I in the agree. plot. I agree. I was like, why was this part of the plot? 
it was just like for the sake of adding another like suspicion to David and element. Yeah. But like he just randomly met Katie on the street and it's like, hey, want to go back and fuck? <laughs> Literally. Yeah. And then like that really doesn't make any sense. No. Honestly, like. And that she had spent like in the book, they say like multiple days. Yeah. She was down there. Yeah. In the basement. So. I mean, maybe if he was like a former partner of hers. That's mm. what I kind of thought. Cause like when she mentioned like that, the earring was from a former boyfriend. Oh, I was like, Oh my God, maybe David is the former boyfriend. Oh yeah. Um, but that didn't end up panning out at all. It just turned out that she like kind of slept with him and was just hanging out with him. I guess in the movie, he ends up being the one to reveal all this information about Katie being the birth mother of Ethan in the movie. Alistair is also Ethan's biological father. Yeah. And kind of talks about her addiction and going to prison and the family trying to like avoid Katie through the years. But I'm like, why would you know all this? And why would she tell you all this? It really was very flimsy to me. Yeah. You know, I think this story could have benefited from, I don't know if this has like a real term in mystery stories, but I'll just call it a partial resolution. Meaning like, you know, in a lot of mysteries, you kind of have all these aspects to it. Like, what's up with this? What's up with that? What's going on with this? Like, what's that? And... I, in a lot of mystery stories, you'll get a partial resolution halfway, not halfway through, like maybe nearish the end, where it's fine. It's revealed that like, oh, um, I don't know. David was actually stealing some things from uh, Anna. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's why. Uh, the, she was suspicious of this. Yeah, or that. the door was unlocked that one time. And that's why mm-hmm. this thing. And it's like, it's not the answer to the main mystery, but it's the answer to a lot of these questions And it clears that stuff off the board. Yeah. Then at the end, when the real questions revealed, you don't have to explain like 30 different things and go back and explain like the whole timeline of events because like that gets really tiring. I felt like the timeline, even like especially in the book at this point of like explaining Ethan explaining like oh and then Jane came to visit this day and then she left and then she came back and then she left and then she came back and then she I swear to god she visited like four times so that we would understand that that's why Anna thought that she was Jane because it looked like she lived there because she was there so often and like why she heard a scream on a separate night from like the murder the murder it just was very kind of like contrived for me yeah and I don't know like in the book when Ethan explains a lot of this I mean we find out later a lot of it's a lie but like Mm -hmm. not a lie so it's like it's kind of a partial reveal in that way but not really helpful because a lot of it's made up or inaccurate. Yeah, I feel like both versions of this were unsatisfactory to me. Like the whole explanation about how Jane was there like the whole time in the book. And then David just being like, yeah, I know this whole woman's history and I'm going to tell it to you right now. But I did not see fit to tell the cops about it at all earlier. (laughs) Well, and I can't help but like it makes me laugh because like the movie rushes through this dialogue yeah, he's so like quickly. Spitting it out. I'm like, I can't follow anything. No, of, we had to rewatch it. Yeah, we we yeah, we watched it before recording because I'm like, I don't know what we're supposed to know and what we're not. Yeah. Like, if you actually if your mystery is good, 
You know what I mean? And supported with evidence and like... It'll all fall together at the end. And it'll be engaging to hear about it. It, It's like Knives Out or like a lot of mysteries like that, like Murder on the Orient Express, which we've talked about in the past. Yeah. Like when you do take your time to establish a mystery with good answers, you're totally engaged in that ending where the detective or whoever is like putting it all together and strutting around and like... There's merit in that. Yeah. But the film almost felt like you don't get this doesn't make any sense. You don't care about this. Just quickly get through this to like the final confrontation. Yeah. I felt that about the book a little bit as well. Yeah. That it didn't quite add up and it felt kind of just rushed at the end. I totally agree. Mm -hmm. This leads though to a confrontation with the true villain of this whole story. It's Ethan. (laughs) The, the, the reveal in the film yeah with him sneezing because he's allergic to the cat and he just kind of like saunters in yeah and you can tell right away because his hoodie is up <laughs> that he's like and he's just got this like letter opener and he's like i'm crazy now he has a knife in the movie in the book that's he true has the that's true in the, which makes more sense in the film that he would just grab something from the home. her house yeah. yeah instead of like i'm gonna bring this evidence with me <laughs> yeah yeah, and this is where, I mean, in the movie, he, like, stabs David as David's trying to leave. I li- I kind of wish, God, I like the idea of David being involved yeah. in this finale, bringing him back. Because in the book, he just disappears. Yeah, he's like, this is weird. I'm going to leave. And I was hoping, like, oh, I know he's been stabbed, but I hope he kind of, like, pops up and, like, maybe knocks Ethan unconscious or something like that. Yeah. Um, He kind of just... Grabs his ankle. Weakly grabs his ankle. And I'm like, oh, dude, just play dead. Please just play dead. And then yeah. he gets stabbed more. For real. For real. And then he's <laughs> actually dead. Yeah, I kind of wish it had done more with like David not being dead or just being involved at all. Yeah, and Ethan reveals in, in both the book and the movie that he was just like waiting to come and like kill Anna basically because she figured out that it was him or that he was involved in this murder of his biological mother, Katie, this whole time. And the book and movie kind of take different perspectives, but they are similar. The movie is much more strong in the aspects of him being like a psychopathic serial killer. Yeah. Just starting out. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) What do I want to be when I grow up? I actually really loved that line. Yeah. (laughs) Because in the movie, like that woman that's killed, that was... His father's assistant, we find out it was Ethan who, like, pushed her off a roof. I couldn't quite, in both versions, understand what the relationship was between that woman and him. Yeah, because, like, in the book, he talks about being interested in older women. Like, sexually. Like, wanting to have a relationship with them. And that's why he's been interested in Anna. And that he had a relationship with this woman with his dad's company. And in the book, he didn't kill her. It just seems like he tried to seduce her. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> Look, if I had to guess what parts of this film had reshoots, yeah, it might be the part when he walks in the room and the first thing he says is, I'm supposed to be at summer camp. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> like, I'm like, what summer camp? Wait, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> okay, that... Is mentioned. Yeah. And then he also talks about seeing her video, her suicide oh, video. Oh, yeah. And then he also mentions that he knows that she found the photo that had the reflection of Jane in it. Three, all three of those things 
have not been established that he would know. So like, we've never heard of him going to summer camp before. Or whatever the thing. Or whatever it is. (laughs) And then the video that she was filming, the suicide video, and the photo she discovered happened in the same day that Ethan shows up. So like, we find out Ethan's been sneaking into her house because he made like a key and he's been, he's the one that took that photo of her while she was sleeping. He's just been like creeping on her this whole time. But there is no time between her filming the suicide video, finding that photo of Jane, showing it to David, for Ethan to have known about it. But he references it in his, like, villain speech. Yeah, it's, like, implied that, like, he saw it on her phone. But, like, the movie makes it look like... It's the same day. Yeah, it all happened, like, consecutively. Yeah. Yeah, the book was a little sloppy in how it kind of assembled all of these... Clues and reveals, but like, I guess it all still makes sense. Yeah. The film is like. Incoherent. I, I don't know what they did reshoot or how they tried to save it, but I don't think they were very successful. It doesn't it. work. Even having even having read the book, I'm still like, I don't know. Because, I mean, he doesn't even say that if the parents knew about Katie, you know, fake Jane being yeah. killed. Like, he doesn't say anything about whether, like, I guess the dad, I guess he doesn't know. Somebody had to help him bury this body, Yeah, did he, like, move and bury a body, like, all on his own? What the fuck did he do with it? At least his dad was there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's not explained. And in the book, too, we find out that this whole time, Grandma Lizzie, who Anna's been talking to on the Agora website, who lives in Montana... (laughs) (laughs) And has been suffering from agoraphobia is actually Ethan. And he's been like creeping on her in her actual house and then online as well. Yes. I also called this one. Yeah, you you got that. (laughs) Although I didn't call this, but I did know that Ethan was suspicious. As soon as the cat was limping, I was like, it's Ethan. Oh, really? Was that your tip off? Yeah. I don't know why. I really didn't register the cat limping as being a clue. Yeah. I was like, somebody hurt this cat. No. Yeah. Although it's a white cat in the film, and I'm just, like, not as into white cats. No. If it was, like, a ginger or a black cat. Yeah. Yeah. Would have gotten my sympathy <laughs> a lot more. I'm, I'm just, you know. Well, white cats are fine. Uh, this begins a wild and wacky uh, chase scene through the home. Yeah. I feel like this could have been more suspenseful in both versions. I don't know. Yeah. Um... Here's my thought, and that is that it's weird that this story is a woman who really loves old thriller films. Yeah. And then everyone's like, oh, you're crazy and you just love old thrillers and that's why you're seeing this thing. Then it fi- she finds out, oh, I'm in one. Like, I'm experiencing, yeah. Yeah. like... A psychopath who's, like, trying to manipulate me, and now I'm running for my life in my home. Like, it's kind of, like, it, it ends up just being a big coincidence. And I wish they had managed to tie in her love of old movies into, like, maybe why some of this stuff was kind of going on, if that makes sense. Hmm. Like, it makes me think of uh, the movie Scream. Yeah. So Scream is like a actual slasher film, but throughout the film, they're constantly referencing horror films and slasher films. Yeah. Like characters, multiple characters are constantly like referring to specific movies and scenes and actors. And by the end, I won't spoil it, but you find out the killer is inspired by those films. Yeah. And I think similarly, it could have done something like this. I mean, it probably would have, 
it would have totally changed a lot of the story. But like, yeah, Ethan still would have been a sociopath. But maybe when Anna meets him at first, she shares her love of these films. Right. Mm -hmm. And then maybe that's that inspires him to do a murder or something along in that style. Yeah. And like, that's why it ends up being really cheesy in a way mm-hmm. or like really contrived. You know what I mean? I wish like that aspect had informed like the actual events of the story instead of just being a big coincidence. Yeah. And even his explanation for killing his birth mother is just like, yeah, I just got like bored of her. Yeah. And I even felt like that was lacking. Yeah. Cause by the end, this whole chase scene and like him trying to stab her, I'm like, Okay, we're now just, like, we're no longer, it's not that it isn't self-aware, but, like, it's just kind of, it is one of those stories now. Yeah. And it's not terrible, but it's kind of, like, less than what it had been. Yeah, they go up to the roof, it's raining, it's dramatic. In the movie, she gets, like, hit through the face with, like, a garden tool. That was really graphic. I did not, I did not like that. Just out of left field kind of there's also a cut where like <laughs> he stabs at her and she blocks it with like a screen yeah and she takes the screen down t- like a millisecond later and he's gone yeah where what is he a ninja <laughs> it's interesting in the book he seems like obsessed with finding out who his birth father was and anna uses this to her advantage and tells him that she knows who his birth father is to try to stop him from murdering her and ends up being like I'm just going to share all these facts that your mom told me about your your birth father and just describes her own husband. And then it's like, he loved you, though, and then hugs him. And he seems like to relax. Yeah. And then then throws him through a skylight. Bye, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I I wish the movie did this scene better. Oh, yeah. Her like throwing him onto the skylight was just disorienting for me. And then she's like on top of him and and, like hits the window. And then she manages to get off it before it breaks. I know. Weird. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But in regards to the book, though, I did not understand the scene where she like just describes her own. I know. I mean, is it just her understanding that like her own family loved her? It's not clear, Ian. Yeah. And I just don't like that she just. Like, she's a child psychologist, yeah. and then she murders a child. Yeah, I didn't really love this either. <laughs> and it seems like she didn't need to in those last moments. I don't know. And then, and she just seems, like, so cold about it. Then, like, she just walks downstairs and, like, walks over his body. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Sure. Ethan is dead. We get a scene in the hospital in the movie where the detective shows up. And is like, I'm sorry, we didn't believe you. You were right this whole time. You know, Ethan is dead. We have the Alistairs in custody, or not the Alistairs, the Russells in custody, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, I saw your video referencing her suicide video. <laughs> did she Did she accidentally tweet her suicide video? Is that why, is that ev- why Ethan knew about it? <laughs> is that it? why everyone has watched this? I don't know. But do- the Detective Little says like, Listen, I'm going to give you your phone back so that we have to confiscate it as evidence, but you can delete the video and then I'll take the phone back as evidence. And I'm like, why does she need to delete the video? It's not incriminating. No. Why does this have anything to do with what happened? And it sounds like he's doing her a favor or he's like helping her seem less suspicious or something. And I'm like... This is just totally irrelevant. Did you just not like the way that you looked in that video? Or are you like, uh, that was so embarrassing that I wanted to kill myself. Like, 
I would be so embarrassed if the whole police department <laughs> saw this video. Like, I, I don't know. It, it was yeah, weird. It's like trying to be a resolution to something that I don't understand what it's even. Yeah. Because, I mean, I actually kind of like the moment when Ethan is like, I know you want to kill yourself and I just want to watch. Like, just let me be yeah. there. I just want to see the life drain from you. <laughs> and, and like, the argument is kind of not reasonable but like she was planning on killing herself and so her in that moment deciding not to is kind of like yeah not triumphant but like that's kind of her moment so Mm -hmm. i like i appreciate that aspect of it but like this moment i'm like i don't know what you're going for no and then the book does like a six weeks later the movie does a nine months later the book is more subdued like she is recovering from this incident and her and her physical therapist are trying to go onto the roof and she's trying to acclimate herself to being outside. The movie is like nine months later and she's actually moving out of her house. She is all better. Yeah, she's hot again. (laughs) (laughs) All she had to do was kill a child, Adina. Yeah, that that made everything better. That's the price you pay to be cured of agoraphobia (laughs) is push a child four stories down a building. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's the end. And before we stop talking about this, we just have to like casually mention the author <laughs> of this book. Low key. Because AJ Finn is a pseudonym. The real author's name is Dan Mallory. And we're going to link these articles in our Patreon, which everybody can access if you just go look at it. But this man is a compulsive liar. Like, really like weird diagnosable yeah uh, the new yorker did this whole profile really extensive and talked about how he told people that his mom died of cancer Mm -hmm. and that his brother committed suicide when they are both still alive yep he wrote emails to a bunch of former co-workers in the uk posing as his brother and talking about a fake uh tumor removal surgery that he was getting yeah but like there's so many obvious like uh mistakes in the emails where like you can tell it's him yeah just weird shit and like how it's the article really compares him to the talented mr ripley um the patricia highsmith book which is definitely something we should do for an episode i would I love that would to be great but just kind of this compulsive liar but charming and coming off really like personable to a lot of people and people not realizing that he's just lying to them and then multiple examples of just small lies morphing into bigger ones (laughs) and then bigger lies just like existing and expecting people to accept them like oh my mom's dead when she's just alive yeah for all the huge ridiculous lies he told the one that like cracked me up the most was like he didn't show up for a meeting at work one day because he said he was watching a neighbor's dog yeah he like zoomed or like you know skyped into the meeting and just every so often he'd interrupt the meeting by like yelling off screen and being like hey no down (laughs) down and then like they'd keep going and after the meeting two of the co-workers we're like, there's no dog. There's no there? dog, right? And they're like, no, there isn't. Like, <laughs> It's just so weird. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know how much it really impacts the story, but it is something to just think about and makes this whole situation that much more interesting, I think. I mean, honestly, the New Yorker article, which is very long, but like it is 
just totally unhinged and like worth a read. It is yeah. just fascinating. Like I'm not even going to be like, you know, it's a detriment to the book or anything like that. It no. is. It's also interesting too, that he like wrote about a sociopath who likes manipulating people like in the end. But, yeah. But also interesting that it's about a woman who no one believes. Yeah. And then ends up being right in the end. Yeah. Interesting comparison. Yeah, a lot of interesting things you can kind of like, you know, tie in together. Yeah, but which one is better? Mm. I feel completely comfortable saying the book in this case. I agree with you. The book was like, you know, for, uh, I, 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 you know, disregarding everything we just talked about with the author, <laughs> fantastic writer. Like, I, I don't know what, I don't know if you'd call it like the prose yeah. of the story, but like, just the way that certain things are described, the word choices, um, just something about the book is like really interesting and enjoyable to read, even like maybe more mundane parts. Mm -hmm. Like the descriptions of like describing her agoraphobia are very effective. And like even before it got into the mystery portion of the story, I just really loved reading about Anna's life. Yeah, she was definitely a more sympathetic character than the main character and the woman or the girl on the train. Oh yeah. I think this book does a better job with that. I will say I have this thing with mystery slash thrillers where I like them when I'm reading them, but when I'm done with them, I don't like them anymore. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. I've mentioned this in other episodes cause mm -hmm. we've done them and I still did like this book a lot. And I think it was super readable and interesting and it kept me super engaged. But then when I'm done with them, I kind of look back and I was like, eh. I totally understand. And I think at the end of the day, like that comes down to like, I think mysteries are best when they're when they're about something beyond just the mystery. Yeah. Like to refer to Knives Out again. Yeah. That movie's so good because like, yeah, it's a really interesting mystery. But there's also this element of like racism and um, entitlement and, like, rich families and, like, kind of those dynamics that, like... Yeah, and when you're talking about, like, Gone Girl, you know, that's a mystery, but it's also not really a mystery. Well, like, and it's it, about so much more. It's about marriage and, like, is marriage inherently fucked up? And, yeah. like, yeah, there's, like, elements so much deeper than just the mystery. Mm -hmm. And I don't... Like, even though Anna's interesting as a character and her... The agoraphobia and stuff is interesting. Like, I wouldn't really say it's, like, about much more than just the mystery going on. Yeah, but I will say, even though Amy Adams does a pretty good job in this film, I would yeah. say the film just doesn't really capture that interest that I had when I was reading the book. Like, I was really hooked and, like, wanting to keep reading. And the movie was a little bit boring, I will say. The movie's kind of a mess. Yeah. Uh, Joe Wright, who we have talked about before with his Pride and Prejudice adaptation, uh, we're not the biggest fan of. And like, I don't know. I think the stylistic choices, as I've said, are all over the place. I think he missed a lot of the tongue in cheek kind of qualities of the book that made it very yeah. self-aware and funny in a lot of ways. Um, and also the movie's at, at an inherent disadvantage because like, yeah, the book is obviously almost ripping off Rear Window. Yeah. But it's a book. It's a totally different medium. Yeah. And that combined with like a different character makes it a different enough experience. Yeah. But when you are adapting it into 
a movie, well, now we're back to square one and like, how do you separate yourself from that story? Yeah, it did have more challenges in that way. So I think we can safely say we prefer the book. Yeah. Let's do lightning round. Let's do a lightning. So first up for lightning round, uh, one one small qualm I have with the book that kind of started to just get like annoying or too much is that um, uh, Detective Little. Yes. Is actually a very big man. (laughs) Do you get that? The irony of that? Yes, I do. Detective Little (laughs) is Bing. A large man. Oh my god! It just talked so much, and like it's not only saying he's like heavy set, like yeah. it's saying he's tall and I think broad shouldered. He's just large in kind of every aspect, but like, oh my god! It just talked about like his linebacker football player <laughs> physique and <laughs> his enormous size, and like just every description of him was just talking about. And I'm like, I get it, I get it. Okay, it's funny. <laughs> stop stop please i just want to read like the first few lines from this book because the book i think starts out really strong and kind of gives you an idea of what it's going to be about and like the tone of it so it starts out like this her husband's almost home he'll catch her this time there isn't a scrap of curtain not a blade of blind in number 212 the rust red townhome that once housed the newly newlywed mots until recently until they unwed i never met either mott but occasionally I check in online. His LinkedIn profile, her Facebook page, their wedding registry lives on Mace- on at Macy's. I could still buy them flatware. <laughs> Something about the whole like scrap of curtain, blade of blind. I know. You know? I remember at one point it described David's uh, stomach as corrugated. Yeah. You know, like just the word choices in this book are like. Interesting. Yeah. And just like keep you engaged throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that also struck me as very funny in the um you know the article about the author yeah. being just a notorious liar it didn't reference woman in the window too much directly mm-hmm. but one thing it did talk about was in the book uh when anna is trying to say like oh this person emailed me this photo can't you trace the gmail account and they're yeah. like it's a gmail account don't you know you can't trace a <laughs> gmail account and the article was like does the author know you can't trace a gmail account because he notoriously sent a lot of emails impersonating his brother from a gmail account yeah <laughs> and thinking back i remember when reading it i'm like That did ring as, like, oddly specific. Yeah. The the detectives were like, of course you can't trace a Gmail account. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, that is weird. It is. (laughs) Yeah. That's it for Lightning Round. I feel like we talked about most of the stuff that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. In the regular episode, so it's a little bit shorter this time. But thank you so much for listening to this episode. This was definitely a fun one to do. And... Check out our Rear View Vertigo episode for anyone who's a patron. And if you would like to become a patron, you can find us on Patreon. In addition to all the cool bonus episodes, you also get priority episode scheduling. We do tons of episodes based on suggestions from patrons. And there's a lot of other cool stuff on there. But we really appreciate everybody who supports us on Patreon. And if you can't join us on Patreon, a huge help to the podcast is if you leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. We're trying to get to 100. Uh, we're currently at 81. So every 
every good review uh, is very helpful. Yeah, and there's different, like, depending on what country you're listening from, you have a different set of reviews. So, honestly, every review helps from oh, every yeah. different part of the world because then people get to see our podcast or maybe finding it. So thank you again for listening. If you'd like to find us on social media, you can go to our website, coveredocredits.com, and you can find all our links to Patreon, to Instagram, Twitter, all that Facebook, stuff on there. Facebook, yeah. Yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.